A male gray wolf has been spotted three times in Ventura County. California Fish and Wildlife says they believe the wolf was born in Oregon in 2019 and fitted with a purple tracking collar. The collar transmission shows it traveled at least 935 air miles in California, a minimum of 16 air miles per day. Yep, you heard that right. A single wolf traveled 1,000 miles from Oregon through Northern California all the way to the outskirts of San Luis Obispo. As biologists would say, dispersers, lone wolves wandering long distances. But this is just a regular part of wolf behavior. Think of it like a teenager heading off to college. A young adult wolf often leaves the pack where they were born to seek and make their own way in the world. If they're lucky, they'll find good food, a mate with excellent genes, and a new home. In the case of OR93, the wolf that went a-wandering through California, the poor guy was looking for a mate in places that hadn't seen another wolf in about 100 years. And in doing so, OR93 met the fate of many other wolves that go a-wandering in the West. He was found dead, struck by a vehicle along Interstate 5 in Kern County, California. When wolves disperse, they're increasingly moving through a human-dominated landscape where they can often get into trouble. Developments, highways, bridges, multi-use lands, you name it. And in today's episode, we're going to be covering werewolves are, where different people think they should be, and the tricky business of managing and living with wolves in a changing world. I'm Jared. And I'm Alex. And this is The Working Wild You. We'll be right back. Working Wild You is a proud part of Natural Resources University, a podcast network delivering science-based information for your natural resource management. Other current network series include Timber University, Fish University, Deer University, Fire University, and Habitat University. Available wherever you get your podcasts. In 1989, 1990, 91, um, a disperser showed up in Nine Mile. It's a little rural community, kind of a bedroom community of Missoula. That's Mike Jimenez. He's the biologist we talked to about dispersing wolves in episode five. But a lot of people raised cattle, sheep, llamas, you name it. Wolves showed up there, big to do. First time wolves had shown up for decades outside Glacier National Park. These were some of the first wolves in Montana to wander down from Canada into a patchwork landscape full of challenge and opportunity. So wolves showed up there, wolves den in April. By July, someone had illegally shot, killed the female. So there's a male taking care of six pups Dad's going across I-90, bringing back elk pieces, deer pieces, got smacked on the highway at the end of August. Just like OR-93, the patriarch met his end on a road. So now we had six pups living in the middle of ag, little ag community of Nine Mile, no parents. So we made the decision, the agency made a decision that we'd feed them, not walk out and give them food, but just create a rendezvous site where normally what would happen, wolves would bring back dead things, pieces of things, pups would learn how to eat, feed on those, and the adults would go out, they hunt, they'd bring things back. So I became the adult that brought things back and I would go look for road kills. Okay, wow. So 
Mike was basically breaking one of the golden wildlife rules. Do not feed the wildlife. All in the name of conservation. And while it seems like he was trying to raise them, he really wasn't. That's right. He just found roadkill to feed them. He'd place it at rendezvous sites in the middle of the night without them knowing he was there. He was trying to minimize the impact of his presence. But still, that is some real VIP treatment for wolves in the wild. But they did kind of bring with them a celebrity status. These were some of the first wolves in all of the American West to disperse out of Canada at a time when a wolf reintroduction into Yellowstone was still a big question mark. And like the wolves that got reintroduced to Yellowstone, these dispersers found their way to private lands pretty quick. Found some old ranchers that were retired that had a big land holding and thought it was pretty novel to have wolves in their front yard. So these wolves grew up for the rest of the year on these road kills, never quite knowing why they showed up. I would put branches to hold them up so they got bigger, they had to knock them over and, you know, the dead animals. Anyway, these wolves grew up, they succeeded, and they started to go off on their own. Dispersing wolves in the West certainly don't get this VIP treatment anymore, but many do run into the same fate as the parents of this litter. That's right. Dispersal is innate wolf behavior giving them a, the grass is always greener on the other side mentality, even when it may not be. So when you think of why would you disperse? So, and again, there's, there's a ton of flexibility and variation in wolf behavior. So if you look at places like national parks with big game populations, why would you leave a pack when you got lots of prey? So when you look at it, most biologists would agree that the two things, it's competition for food, and competition for breeding. Within each pack of wolves, there's usually just a single pair of breeders that raise a litter. So when juveniles come of age, anywhere between one and two years, many feel that competition within their own pack, and they set out to make their own way in the world. These dispersing wolves are looking to find a mate, a good den site, and an adequate prey base to support them and their offspring. And recent research shows that population density is the main driver of whether wolves leave their pack and look for new homes. But the data suggest that dispersal rates peak at both the high and low wolf densities. So wolves leave when there's too few of them around and when there's too many. Makes sense for a social creature. Kind of explains the suburbs. But anyways, these dispersals are extremely variable. They can be anywhere from 20 to thousands of miles. Researchers are still trying to figure out why wolves disperse over these long distances when mates and adequate prey bases may be nearby. If they go on average, um, you know, 35, 40 miles. They've gone several hundred miles. We had one go from Cody, Wyoming to the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Um, they go to Oregon, to Washington, back to British Columbia, to the Dakotas. Um, you name it, and, and they're capable of doing that. So they're, they're very good at doing that. Whether short or long dispersal, human-caused mortality reduces the distance, duration, and success of dispersal events. Simply, the denser the people and their cars, the less permeable the landscape, and as a result, the harder it is for wolves to survive. But wolves will traverse many areas where it's challenging for them to persist. To a dispersing wolf that just darted across the highway or dodged the barking backyard dogs of a subdivision, the farm or ranch he stumbles on may seem like a potential paradise. 
That's when these dispersers become a challenge for livestock producers who haven't had a chance to prepare for their arrival. Um, we lost, I don't even remember how many sheep, but throughout the entire summer, um, we ended up losing 30 some odd head of sheep, a goat, a calf. The neighbors lost a horse um, and some calves as well. And it was pretty wild time around here. This is Kim Kearns, a sheep producer in Baker County, Oregon, who back in 2009, experienced the first confirmed wolf depredations in the area in nearly a century. That would have been our first suspected sheep depredation um, on the Umatilla National mm -hmm. Forest. The fish and wildlife guy looked her over in the field and those lamb bits looked all that over in the field and he was like, yeah, this, he's like, I'm not going to give you 100% because I don't know for sure, but this looks pretty cut and dried wolf. And we're all like, yeah, I mean, agreed, 100%. Just the bite marks, the pre-mortem bruising, um, I've never seen a coyote in my life that could snap a lamb femur. And also, coyotes leave skeletons. Mm -hmm. This can be a pretty grisly scene for any livestock producer, and it's all the more challenging when there are not fully established systems of support. They put a lot down because they were just not savable. Um, There's a lot of dead sheep. I think one out of the whole bunch had been eaten at all. And not completely. It was like a few bites. Um, most of them were just crushed to death, um, or they'd been run into a corner and just stressed to death. So, um, and lots, we have photos. I mean, it's pretty gory. Um, but lots of them have just been ripped to shreds and left to die. That was our first experience. According to Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, they lethally removed both of the wolves shortly after that. Dispersing wolves that travel over long distances have been shown to be bolder and more likely to approach humans, buildings, and roads than those that stay put. And these bolder wolves who are more comfortable moving close to people and properties create new opportunities for conflict in areas unaccustomed to their presence. And to folks like Kim, who are experiencing these levels of losses for the first time, this can be really gut-wrenching. Definitely. And what Kim experienced was wolves dispersing into a state that really hadn't seen that many wolves in the past 80 years. Remember that pack that set up shop at Julia Child's place in Montana just after the Yellowstone reintroduction? I do. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was so worried about them getting into trouble, they snatched them up and took them right back to the park pretty quick. Right, and the fact of the matter is, we live in shared landscapes where wildlife habitat overlaps with working lands in much of the West. And remember, in the Northern Rockies, 96% of wolves live outside of national parks on these multi-use working lands. As development crowds out working lands, expanding highways and subdivisions create all kinds of barriers to movement for wolves and other wildlife as well. And as a result, dispersal can often end in death for both wolves and livestock. Many wolf management and recovery plans currently rely on dispersing wolves to recolonize previously unoccupied territories and to meet recovery goals. But in landscapes that are increasingly human-dominated, folks are grappling with the questions, where should wolves be and where do they need to be to be considered recovered? 
And after the break, we'll jump into some of the different opinions on the future of wolves in the West, whether we should recreate what was or just actively manage what is. Hey, Working Wild, you listeners. We think you'll like another show from the Western Landowners Alliance, the Unland Podcast, a show that features thoughtful conversations with people who are living and working on the land and shaping the future of stewardship in the American West. The Unland Podcast is the audio companion of On Land, the magazine of the Western Landowners Alliance. Check it out at onland.westernlandowners.org and listen wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back to the Working Wild You. So think back to episode four on the Endangered Species Act, where we discuss Wolves' historic range, which was effectively most of North America. Now, picture the highway interchanges of Denver, the ever-expanding suburban sprawl of L.A. or Salt Lake City, the growing towns of Bend, Oregon, and Bozeman, Montana. These all exist within Wolves' historic range. Working wild lands and protected areas make up the remainder of an increasingly shrinking habitat for wolves and the prey species they rely on. The thing is, we all lack a shared vision for where wolves should be in the future. The constant back and forth of Endangered Species Act listings, delistings, and relisting is largely focused on issues surrounding wolf range, which is evidence of this tension, this lack of a shared vision. Some people want to see wolves occupy the vast majority of their potential range to consider them recovered. Now, I can get to the point where some human activities have to change for restoration or rewilding to work. That's Mike Phillips, a former Montana state senator and the director of the Turner Endangered Species Fund. He has played a leading role in many wolf restoration efforts throughout the United States, including the Yellowstone reintroduction. You can't expect widely distributed wolf populations if you don't have minimal human-caused mortality. People have to change. Uh, I don't think they need to go away, necessarily, but they need to be more thoughtful. They need to be more accommodating. As a reminder, by definition, rewilding is the planned reintroduction of a plant or animal species into a habitat from which it has disappeared in an effort to increase biodiversity and restore the health of an ecosystem. And all that sounds pretty good, right? Right, it sounds good. But in reality, it means, as Mike says, that some humans have to change. And when you layer on a preservationist mindset, that could mean that some lands are no longer suitable for any human use. And to think that any of these landscapes have been devoid of human use just isn't true. We know that humans have actively stewarded the landscape for thousands of years. That's it exactly. Who has to change? How much and who decides? These are big questions. Recently, we were actually provided a very clear picture of what some groups think rewilding for wolves would require and of who in the West. This past summer, so 2022, a group of ecologists and biologists, including Mike Phillips, published a paper titled Rewilding the American West, and in it, they offered a strategy for reintroducing wolves and beavers to 70 million acres of federal public lands spread across 11 western states. This group, which was led by Oregon State ecologist William Ripple, decided to focus on one specific cause of wolf mortality when they laid out their rewilding strategy. 
Conflicts with Livestock. Here's Bill Ripple in an NPR interview from August 2022. Yes, what we are, are proposing is that we retire livestock grazing on some federal lands. We would have a program to compensate the farmers and ranchers for giving up or retiring those grazing allotments. Ripple and his co-authors specifically proposed to eliminate grazing on 29% of currently grazed public lands in the West. And they specify where. We realize that our proposal is controversial, but we wanted to put out the best conservation science and then let the public and the policymakers and the stakeholders debate it and discuss it and make decisions as we go down the road. So why does the rewilding movement struggle to create a shared vision of the West that incorporates the needs and perspectives of agriculture? Putting forward an idea about significantly reducing public lands grazing without acknowledging the economic interconnectedness between public and private lands just doesn't acknowledge all of what's at stake here. What's being proposed could have dramatic economic consequences to rural communities across the West. And most ranchers I know won't help their ecosystems in abundant biodiversity, especially the multi-generational family-owned operations. Their livelihoods depend on it. They know that if they take care of the land, it will take care of them. It's like that rewilding question. It's like, let's rephrase it and say, let's live in a world, in, a, in our landscapes that are whole and that, that work and that the systems work and support people, wildlife, and every other component that we need for functioning natural systems. We're trying to get to this concept of we are part of a whole. And there's not wild and tame, there's whole. That's Caroline Bird. Caroline worked for eight years as the executive director of the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. Wild again is feels separate. That's wild. We're not wild. People get scared about rewilding, right? It's like, oh, that means I'm not part of it. You know, I'm gonna be like put in a city and, and everything else gonna be wild. And it's like, no, 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 it's we are part of the whole. And it's a whole system, it's a natural system, and humans are part. So Caroline is saying the concept of rewilding is writing people out of the story. And the reality is, people have always been part of nature, not separate from it. Within our shared landscapes, the working wild, wolves, beavers, humans, livestock, we all have roles to play in restoring biodiversity and protecting or restoring ecosystem health. But how? When we come back, We're going to look at what it's like to try to manage wolves for multiple values in working wild landscapes. If you're enjoying Working Wild U, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear from you. And be sure to subscribe to Working Wild U wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks. Now back to the show. Welcome back. We're picking back up with the story of how managers and livestock producers are dealing with dispersing wolves as they move into areas that haven't seen them in nearly a century. In Oregon, this is an ongoing challenge. We talked with Roblin Brown, who's with the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. I've been working on wolves in Oregon for 13 years, first as the assistant wolf program coordinator and 
more recently for four or five years as the statewide wolf coordinator. And Roblin came to Oregon from Idaho in 2008, right around the time of the first confirmed reproduction of wolves in the state of Oregon. We got here at about the same time. And so uh, some people used to say that I brought them, <laughs> but I didn't. I swear I didn't. I came here to work on bighorn sheep. <laughs> and so I have been here as the population has grown from four wolves all the way up to 175. <laughs> as you might imagine, this growing population has brought some growing pains. Let's take a step back a moment. Think about the West Coast states, especially Oregon and Washington. There's a really sharp divide between the big cities, Seattle, Portland, on the coast, west of the mountains, and the vast eastern part of the state, which is dominated by agricultural land. So Oregon is basically split geographically and politically down the middle. And that split also, coincidentally, extends to how wolves are managed. Yep, in the rural eastern side of the state, wolves are no longer endangered. They've been delisted from the Endangered Species Act. That means they can be managed more liberally by the state. In the more urban and populated western side of the state, they're still protected as endangered. Yeah, so about 90% of the wolves are in the East Wolf Management Zone in Oregon. And in the northeast corner of the state, despite their delisted status, significant wolf livestock conflicts continue. I just don't believe in throwing my hands in the air and saying it's the cost of doing business in wolf country. Um, so I'm out here as much as I possibly can be. Um, Sleeping with the cows if need be, like this year, was just was, has been horrendous. Um, I'm definitely nervous that you know of the care that's being given to the cows. That's Tom Berkmeyer, who, along with his wife Kelly, run cow-calf pairs in Wallawa County, Oregon, where wolves have really set up shop. Because wolves are delisted and managed differently than the western part of the state, wolves that chronically depredate livestock may be subject to lethal control. Let's listen to Roblin as she talks about incremental removal. They are divergent goals, but I think one of the things to remember is that we also are also trying to conserve wolves in Oregon. So when we're making a management decision about removing wolves, would we want to consider possibly doing an incremental removal and remove enough wolves to reduce the depredation or stop the depredation versus doing a whole pack removal, which might be more helpful in that particular situation, but isn't going to help wolves disperse into other parts of the state, isn't going to help conserve the population and give the wolves the chance to recolonize. Wildlife managers in Oregon are trying to strike a tricky balance, managing conflicts and conserving wolves. How do you manage the impacts of wolves on livestock in the northeastern portion of the state while creating opportunities for dispersal to western parts of the state that are still largely devoid of wolves? And back to that topic of rewilding, should wolves even be in the western part of that state? And all of this has made the wolf situation in Oregon very challenging, by all accounts. And in the next episode, we'll go there with you to learn more about how things are going in Oregon and the entire Pacific Northwest. See you then. Working Wild U is a production of Montana State University Extension and Western Landowners Alliance with support from the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation, Western Sayer, and listeners like you. Today's episode was directed and edited by Zach Altman and produced by Matthew Collins, Zach Altman, Alex Few, Jared Beaver, and Abby Nelson, with editing support from Kathleen Shannon. Our hosts are Jared Beaver and Alex Few. Lewis Wirtz is our executive producer. 
Music is from Artlist and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Tom and Kelly Berkmeyer, Roblin Brown, Mike Jimenez, Kim Kearns, Mike Phillips, and Caroline Bird. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.